นโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควาทัวอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดำมังสังขังนะมะสาThe community here has just finished having a week of quiet. Uh, those of you that perhaps tried to ring the monastery realized that we were unavailable. Pulled the plug on the phone for a week. So I'm sure I speak on behalf of uh, everybody in the community to say how grateful we are to those who supported the retreat. It feels an enormous uh, privilege and uh, really wonderful to be able to. To pull the plug like that, and uh, really get quiet and get still. So, as the question has been uh, given this evening, which says, "There is so much emphasis on being somebody, going somewhere, in this society. How can we practice with the feeling of lack of self-worth that can emerge when we let go of being somebody?" The ego seems to keep on manifesting, even in feeling worthless. So there's so much emphasis in our society on being someone, going somewhere. I'm sure this is true. Perhaps it's more true now than it's ever been that uh, there is this expectation to. Promote ourselves as individuals. If you listen to the news, every reporter who comes on has introduced himself as a personality. I mean, when this first started happening, I thought, "Well, I don't really care who they are. You know, I mean, I'm one of the news. I don't want to hear who you are." I mean, and it uh, seems to be the case these days. When you watch television as well, as everybody is promoting their personality. Or, And the reporters now often become the story. Yes, because uh, me, as a personality, as an individual, is perhaps more than ever where we find our security, where we find our identity, in me. And this has not always been the case. You know, uh, human beings used to find their identity, used to find out the sense of who I amness um, in the family or in the village. Or in the tribe, um, you know the way things have developed, and I'm sure social anthropologists would have a lot to say about this, about how the uh, when the dismantling of the of the family unit after the industrialization and and so on, mobile uh, families, the breakdown in peer groups, and all this, that uh, the uh, sense of identity contracted. And these days, I think, yeah, even the, the feeling of finding identity in your family has been diminished, uh, and, and with the promotion of the individual, is the thing. Me, this is my name, and this is who I am, and this is what I do, and and I've got uh, Facebook and Orkut and Yahoo 360, all these social networks that I just found out there are out there, and and everybody. Uh, Presenting themselves, their favourite movies, their favourite books, and 
And, uh, well, of course, people didn't used to do this when actually uh, your community, your, your family, your friends were the people who you actually lived with. Well, that's, uh, that's changed a lot. We all know that. And the pressure that comes to bear on the ego as a result is, I think, quite phenomenal. And it's no wonder that so many egos, I think, crack up. I think I should, at this point, uh, for the sake of the uh, contemplation, uh, clarify how I use the word ego. Uh, a lot of people will demonize the ego, you know, talk about, use the word ego always in the pejorative. And I personally don't use it that way. Uh, I, I see the ego as a, uh, a mental complex, as a bunch of sankharas, a conventional structure. You could call it, also call it the self-structure. Uh, the personality, and uh, we actually have to work quite hard to develop one of these things, an integrated sense of, of, of who I am, a sense of, of uh, me being separate from you and, and mama and papa and the world and so on. And, and if this uh, self-structure, this ego doesn't develop properly, if it's dented or twisted or warped in some way, then you get some very hap- unhappy and confused characters around. So, uh, but even if it does develop, even if the ego structures or self-structures do develop in a reasonably balanced and integrated way, you still end up with a, a, uh, your average unhappy human being. And so we can, if we're not careful, take an initial look and just see that this, this me is the problem. And then, you know, try and get rid of ourselves even, you know, pretend we don't exist. And so you hear a lot in spiritual circles of uh, people talking about uh, the ego in, in, uh, in a very negative way. Um, well, yes, it's obviously true that when we take ourselves too seriously, we suffer. That's true. But the idea of getting rid of a self, I think, is a mistake. Now, the, the fact society these days is structured in a way whereby the self-structure, the individual ego structure, is overemphasized and is over-contracted, over-compacted, overly dense, does mean that we suffer more, I think, than, than perhaps the average human being has in the past. I do think that's a fair enough opinion. However, I think ignorant human beings have always suffered. And so I personally don't think it's a problem with society uh, and even their expectations for us to be somebody, uh, going somewhere. I think that's, personally, I think that's always been the case. Okay, these days it's more dramatic and more intense and faster and heavier. Now, that's true. But, you know, you look back a while, I mean, you, you were supposed to be, a, you know, a good something else, a good hunter, you know, going around chasing tigers or something. You know, if you weren't any good at it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a nice wife. And that was how it was. So I think it's always been something like this, that, that you have to be a good somebody so long as we are stuck in being identified with this ego structure. So the way I approach it is the problem is not in the ego structure itself, not in the self-view, not in the self-structure, but in the way we understand the self-structure and the way that we understand this image we have of ourselves. We have this image of ourselves 
me. I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, I'm progressing, I'm regressing, I've got it together, I haven't got it together. Or in this case here, this person is saying that when they let go of being somebody, the ego seems to keep on manifesting with feelings of worthlessness. Well, even feeling worthless is still being somebody. So the feeling of being somebody, of any, any sort of a somebody, if we perceive that feeling of being somebody as anything more than dust floating around in empty space, yeah. which of course we all do, but I think it's a helpful image, because that's what it is. That all the, all the images we have of ourselves, yeah. all of them, the agreeable or the disagreeable images we have of ourselves, they're all conditioned, they're all stuff. That's why you know, we have this uh, the teaching, the classic Theravada Vipassana teaching is contemplation of anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Now, why do we have this? It's not because we're trying to... You know, the Buddha's not, not kind of a miserable old sad sack who's just saying the whole thing's miserable. Not at all. The Buddha wasn't miserable. Profoundly peaceful and, and contented. But if we mistake ourselves for being something that we're not, if we mistake these conventional aspects of ourselves, the, the feelings we have about ourselves, the impressions we have about ourselves, the thoughts we have about ourselves, or others, or the world, then we think they're permanent, then we think they're satisfactory, then we, they, then we think they're self. And so this investigation into impermanence is a way of, it's a, it's just, it's a way of loosening our grip on the conditioning, on the experience. And so this ego that we experience ourselves to be, this me, with its qualities, positive and negative, agreeable and disagreeable, um, uh, we can spend a lot of time, a lot of energy polishing it. And uh, you've heard me speak a number of times before, I think there's a lot to be said and, and contemplated in the area of of developing self-structures until they're good enough. Because uh, if we don't have good enough self-structures, good enough, good enough functional ego, uh, I'm of the opinion that these dense or dysfunctions on the level of self, on the level of ego, are going to get in the way of spiritual life. Now, not everybody agrees with this. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of monks and nuns and other spiritual teachers who tell you don't waste your time reading self-help books, going to see therapists, or paying any attention to yourself at all because it's all impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. It's all empty. Just chuck the whole mess out and be done with it. Well, people who talk like that probably have got you know, a good enough self-structure that's not getting in the way of their spiritual practice. And so that's why sometimes these people, unfortunately, can't understand those who are struggling. But it, it can be the case that for many... And particularly these days, because the self-structure, because the ego is so contracted, so compacted, is having to bear the burden of identity completely. We can't share this task of finding a conventional, functional sense of who we are with our family or with our tribe or with our village anymore. All of these things have fallen away. It's all focusing on self, on ego. And then a lot of these egos get twisted and distorted and are not functioning in a very convenient, comfortable way. And yes, there can be 
an excess amount of suffering going on. Yeah, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but you know, the average neurotic person has got an average level of anxiety, which may be a good uh, sort of inspiration for spiritual practice. So not just getting complacent and contented with things the way they are. And we realize this is a wonderful opportunity that, that uh, you know, not far ahead of us, we're going to die. We're going to die and it's probably not going to be fun. But before then, we can really work on finding out what is it that doesn't die. You know, the great teachers around have spoken about this possibility of realizing that which is unborn, undying, uncreated, unmade, unmanifest. Just, just the last few days sent the next year's calendar off to the printers in Dorset. And January, page one, we have uh, Ajahn Sumato. Nice, bright, smiley picture of Ajahn Sumato taken at our 25th anniversary here last year. And the quote is just this one. There is the unborn, the unmade, the uncreated, the unmanifest. If there wasn't the unborn, the unmade, the uncreated, then there wouldn't be freedom from the born, the creator, the made, the manifest. And if this teaching, to any degree, triggers a, an inspiration within us, is a thing that 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 you know, the unborn is a possibility, the uncreated, the unconditioned. We don't have to spend all our time fiddling with, playing with, messing around with the conditions of life if you realize the unconditioned. That's what the Buddha was talking about. That's what the great teachers are talking about. And we can hear that and be tremendously inspired by that. And uh, our heart can be moved and we can, we can long for it and move towards it. And, but if it's the case that um, in the process of moving towards that, we come up against intense anxiety, intense suffering, not your average neurotic disposition, but something a little bit more than that, well, then the wise thing to do is to uh, you know, pull back a little bit on our passionate, enthusiastic aspirations for cracking ignorance here and now as I sit under the tree until my bones break, which sometimes people try to do, and take a kind, gentle look at the self-structures until we've uh, learned what we need to learn and move on. And so this is also uh, implied in this question here, or, or relevant to this question here. The ego seems to keep on manifesting even in feeling worthless. Well, this, this can be the case that you know, some, some people have such deep-seated conditioning of worthlessness for very good reasons. You can be very deeply conditioned very early on in life. You can drink it in from your mother who's also believing that she's worthless. You, know, you tell somebody that they're worthless long enough, they can really deeply believe it. And if we do hold such deep beliefs, then trying to let go of all self-beliefs and say, well, you know, everything's unsatisfactory and impermanent and not self and I'm going to realize the unborn, well, maybe it's not going to work for us. So, as I say, we need to sometimes be flexible enough, agile enough with our attention and turn around and, and start looking at the ego, not demonizing the ego, just saying, well, what is this ego, this feeling of me? This feeling of me. And it can be the case that if we're doing this, then maybe we start to feel that we get more energy and maybe we're beginning to actually do our own practice because, yes, it's true what the Buddha said, yes, it's true what the great teachers say, I mean, 
that uh, you know, we have faith and confidence in the, this truth. We're not denying this truth. But also, if I'm being honest with myself, well, this is not working. Yeah. And so we pull back and we start to get interested in the, re- the apparent reality of the self. And so this is why I started off by saying that I wouldn't be in a hurry to blame society for our compulsion to find identity in being somebody going somewhere. I think that's always been the case to some degree. It's just more so now than ever. But the solution is not to change society. The solution is surely to change the way we view the self, the ego, the conventional feeling of me. And if that means that we've got to come back and accept, for instance, the apparent validity of me, this is me. Sometimes I've given talks about about uh, when you're feeling strong passion, like um, feeling desire or, or anger. And, um, if you've done a meditation course and kind of got a little clued up on vipassana and you know about you know, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self and, and uh, you've thought about it and say, oh yeah, that makes very good sense. And then some strong desire comes up and you can approach it by saying, well, there's no me. There's no, this is not mine. This desire is not mine. And we've got to be careful about that because depending on how we're engaging our contemplation there, we can be doing it just with our heads. And sometimes what's needed is to sometimes just come back and actually say, this is mine. Yeah. This is my desire. I want, I've seen this many times actually, uh, in men and in women, uh, that they don't really know what they want. Again, there's some conditioning gets programmed in very early on, and it's quite normal. And uh, yeah, grow up, become an adult, and go through life, and then start practicing and and understand teachings on a certain level. accurately on a certain level but when it comes to actually doing it to really becoming intimately present with the passion of desire as a block no way can't go there anger is the same You're not allowed to feel anger so many people I've seen this happen not allowed to feel anger not allowed to feel desire and, and they, people can justify their so-called vipassana practice by, just, you know, by going on about this is not self, this is impermanent, and I've got to let go of it. Well, sometimes it's a case that first we've got to actually accept it. Okay, this is mine. This is, and so, for instance, in this case, the feeling of worthlessness. Yeah. I, uh, I wouldn't be in a hurry to try and let go of it. I think Ajahn Abhinanda gave a talk about this recently, where, where trying to do the letting go uh, is, in a way, a form of resistance or struggle. And I think what he was saying, and whoever was saying it, was actually to use the concept of let it be, is sometimes works better. And it shows up the, the degree to which we're, we're trying to push away what it is that is asking to be received. I mean, really, the... the 
the only reason that we're still suffering from this old stuff is because there's something we haven't really fully received, that we haven't fully lived through. Keeps coming back, keeps coming back. All it needs to all that needs to happen is to receive it into awareness fully, accurately, as it is here and now, just so it's gone. We've all seen this. You know, when you're really there in the moment and just receive whatever's happening, see it, letting go happens. So letting go happens. It's not something we have to do. So like, for instance, this feeling of, of worthlessness. We feel like we've let go of, of certain things in this question, letting go of being somebody, and that could well be valid, but still left with a feeling of, of uh, worthlessness. Well, instead of trying to let go of the feeling of worthlessness, try, just, try saying, it's just so. Let it be there. It, it is just so. I mean, that's, that's the reality. The feeling of worthlessness is just so. It's just the feeling of worthlessness. It's like, you know, sometimes we can approach these things, it's like trying to make salt sweet. Salt is salty. Right? The feeling of worthlessness is what? It feels like worthlessness. That's it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the feeling of worthlessness. And this is good news because there's nothing wrong with anything, actually. You know, nothing that we feel is wrong. Nothing that arises in consciousness is wrong in the sense of it shouldn't be there. It is there. It is how it is. It is what it is. What is it that makes a problem? What is it that turns the feeling of worthlessness into being a problem? Or any feeling we have into being a problem? Well, there's something that we're adding extra, isn't it? There's some way, some devious way that we are attaching to it. And so how to deal with this? I would say don't try and let go. Just, just, just appreciate, just be glad at our interest in being honest. Yeah. Just enjoy the fact that we're really interested in being honest with ourselves. And tremendous self-respect and tremendous energy comes from that. It doesn't matter. You know, you see somebody else being honest in the face of adversity. You know, when somebody's being challenged and it's very easy to be dishonest and they're honest, what comes up? Respect, admiration. Somebody who goes against the tendency to be deceitful. Well, likewise, within ourselves, when we're honest about our own deceitfulness, wonderful energy comes from that. Yeah. And so the feeling of, of, of worthlessness is the feeling of worthlessness. And of course, it's not attractive. But it's only a problem if we are somehow doing something about that feeling that's making it into a me. We're doing something with it that's creating a problem. It's conditioned. We've been programmed to feel worthless. If we hadn't been programmed to feel worthless, there's no way we'd feel worthless. We should feel worthless. But we don't have to become worthless. That's the difference. And so with this honesty, with this increased commitment, conscious commitment to honesty, well then even the bad things uh, become something that we look forward to. Seeing. Because you feel good when you're being honest. You know, the heart really enjoys integrity. The heart really enjoys honesty. Yeah. The ego doesn't. The ego, the ego's, the ego's a mess. <laughs> it's all over the place. Yeah. It's functional. We need one. Let's start off by saying we've got to have some sort of a sense of being somebody. You know, and 
everybody is a somebody. Ajahn Sumedha is a somebody. Ajahn Chah was a somebody. But the way Ajahn Chah was a somebody was that he didn't take that somebody too seriously. So when weird aspects of his somebodyness came up, he didn't follow them. He didn't have to because he wasn't identified with it. So wisdom and compassion motivated his action, not the habit of reacting to his false identity of being a somebody. So if somebody said, Ajahn Chah, he would sort of say, yes. He wouldn't sort of sit and go, duh. <laughs> who are you talking to? <laughs> Ajahn Chah knew who he was. <laughs> How did he know who he was? There was a conventional self-structure. What was the difference between Ajahn Chah's self-structure and ours? Is that we take ours a lot more seriously than he did. So what's the practice? What do we do about it? Well, we don't, I don't think it's useful to blame our society or blame our parents or, or blame our lack of good religious education or anything else. I mean, all of these things have got you know, some degree of responsibility. But what can we do about it? What we can do about it is bring increased honesty to the predicament we find ourselves in. And so whenever we catch ourselves making a false self, you know, I'm not going to demonize the self. There's a functional self. You know, as I've said many times before, the Buddha used the word self, I, self, atta, in a conventional relative meaning. Yeah. So we don't want to demonize the self or the ego. But when we, when we know we're getting caught up, when we catch ourselves getting caught up in a false ego, a false sense of self, which means taking the self too seriously, what do we do? We just sign up to it. And it feels good. It feels really good. I had an experience a few days ago. I was going down to London, and uh, and uh, on the train, I was, somebody left a, a newspaper there, which was very nice for me. That was very nice. Thank you very much. And just the paper I wanted as well. So I was reading this paper, and it's interesting articles. And, so, and then there's this one article talking about how in October there's a company, an American company, opening up in London called Flexi Pets. And pets, of course, spelt with a Z. And it means you can hire a pet for as long as it's convenient for you to have one. And then when you're getting bored with it, you can just ditch it. You know, I mean, who wants to deal with ugly old dogs and, you know, things that, uh, and other pets? And now I can see some of you kind of fuming, <laughs> fumes coming out of your ears. <laughs> But this is true, um, and I must say, I don't know whether I fumed, but I did have a little reaction, flexi pets, for goodness sake. I mean, who needs it? You know, where's commitment? Where's commitment anymore? And, you know, it's all going down the tube, and, and I, I admit that I had a few negative thoughts about that. And uh, I approached London. London's not my favorite place, I mean, I don't mind it, but I'm kind of attached to being in the north. People are so friendly up here, and helpful and so on and you get down to London you know then somebody's going to probably mug you or do something nasty to you or be rude or whatever what's interesting is when you catch yourself doing something like that if you really catch yourself and just see it not say oh I should know better than this if we just see it and this is what we can do this is what we can train our minds to do just see, oh yeah, you're having prejudices or you're having these attachments or you're, you're taking yourself too seriously. But even if we catch ourselves doing these things, if we then add something to it, you know, making some negative judgment about ourselves, what's that? What is that? Well, I think if we're really committed to practice, we're really committed to cultivating pristine awareness, 
that's just an indulgence. Yeah. Getting off on giving ourselves a hard time. Yeah. Being worthless. Being a failure. Being hopeless. And it's not, it's not just a concept. Either the feeling of worthlessness or the feeling of self-condemnation or the feeling of or the feeling of, of superiority for that matter. I mean, if you really think that you're just wonderful, as some people do, I mean, you meet them from time to time, they just think they're absolutely amazing. But it doesn't really matter whether we think we're better than everybody else or worse than everybody else. How do we, how do we receive the experience as just so? Well, I think it's possible. I think if we, if we're really interested, really interested in being honest in the moment, whatever it is we're feeling, feeling good about ourselves, feeling bad about ourselves, we're not going to grasp it in the same way. So I guess the point I really would like to emphasize this, this evening is is that these self-views that we have, we really want to be careful about demonizing them. You know, I remember a talk Ajahn Chah gave about self-view, actually. He was talking about, um, well, conceit. Ditti mana, as it says in Pali. Yeah. Ditti is view and mana, conceited. In this case, ditti mana, the conceited view. And self view, and uh, he was saying he was puzzling about this. He said, "How do you, how do you find the right view?" And he was he'd been reading the Abhidhamma, and uh, in the Abhidhamma it talks about the nine types of conceited self view. When you perceive yourself to be better than somebody, when in fact you are better than somebody, that's a conceited view, and we're going to suffer. Because then he said, "Well, actually," he said, "He said I am better than a lot of people." At doing all sorts of things. And he says, that's just the truth. I can't pretend it's not true. Like he said, you know, I can chant better, I can sit better, I can make robes better, I can haul water better, I can sweep leaves better. It's true, I can do it. But then in the, in the Abhidhamma it says, if you see yourself as better, when in fact you are better, it's still a conceited view. When you see yourself as better, when in fact you're equal. When you see yourself as better, when in fact you're worse. And then when you see yourself as equal, when in fact you're better, when you see yourself as equal, and in fact you are equal, when you see yourself as equal, and in fact you're worse, and then when you see yourself as worse, when in fact you're better, when you see yourself as worse, when in fact you're equal, and you see yourself as worse, in fact you are worse. <laughs> the nine types of conceited view. And Ajahn Chah was say, well, 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 you know, how do you pick this up? I mean, where do you... Until he said he realized that it's not the view. I mean, these are just conventions, the perceptions themselves are just so. But it's the grasping of the view. That's the issue. So the self-views we have, the self-structure, the conventional, the memories we have, uh, the perceptions we have, these are just so. Where does it become a problem? What is it? Where is it? How is it that we do something that turns these perceptions 
into a source of suffering? That's the question. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.